Beyond Leadership, a Cleveland Clinic podcast at the intersection of leadership and everything else. In this podcast, we will co-mingle with extraordinary thinkers and explore the impact of their ideas and experiences on leadership and management. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our podcast. I am your host, Dr. Brian Bolwell, and today I have the enormous pleasure of speaking with Dr. Miguel Ruggiero, chair of the Cleveland Clinic's Digestive Disease and Surgery Institute, which is one of our largest and certainly one of our most important. Welcome to the podcast, Miguel. Great. Thank you, Brian. Miguel, can you tell our listeners a little bit about your background and when you joined the Cleveland Clinic and uh, how you got to be here? Yeah, no. So I joined uh, Cleveland Clinic in 2018 as the uh, department chair for gastroenterology, hepatology, and nutrition. Prior to that, I'd been in Pittsburgh since 1997, uh, UPMC, and and originally in the inflammatory bowel disease program, and then worked in the division of GI, uh, was the clinical director there. And then prior to that, was in Boston for about seven or eight years in training and junior faculty. And then I grew up in Philadelphia. So I guess that takes me back to my true roots, uh, but Pittsburgh before Cleveland Clinic. And when you came and became chairman of the gastroenterology department, if I recall, there were some challenges. It was a department that wasn't a very happy one. So what did you find and how did you approach it? I knew coming in in 2018 that there had been challenges, and I guess I've gone through my life not shying away from challenges and looking at what I consider high risk, high reward, and I'm happy to sit here today and say it was a high reward, but there was some risk. That's definitely true. I think it was a, it's a wonderful department, had been for years, but there had been a lot of turnover, so people had left, leadership changes, and with that, the morale was quite low. And I think the the feeling at the time was that the gastroenterology department wasn't being heard. Why should we stay? And this really led to a mass exodus. So that that's what I walked into. And, and I knew that coming in, eyes wide open. And really the, the first few months, and we can get more into this, I guess, but is was really just listening. That's probably what I did more than anything. And the interviews and leading up to the job, and then when I took the job, is just to really hear everybody's voice. Yeah, I think that's incredibly important as you start. What did you find out when you listened? I found out when I listened that people felt that they had lost individual controls of their lives, their professional lives, uh, their schedules. The second thing I found out was that really that people felt or the staff felt that there was a de-emphasis on academics so that they were widgets in a machine to see patients and generate revenue. But really, that was it. And, and without any control, that was quite demoralizing. Uh, and so th- those are probably the two largest. Uh, and through that then led to a lot of negative emotions and negative feelings. Um, but at least it was a starting point. And one of the things that was refreshing to me, which I was worried about originally, is that people wouldn't tell me anything. And, and it was quite the opposite. <laughs> if anything, I think people were just ready to unload. So that was quite good. So from a leadership perspective, how did you think you needed to approach this? How were you going to go forward and make things better? I came in with my own set of thoughts as far as what I wanted to do, build back academics, build back the clinical programs, uh, do a lot of recruitment. That was, that was going to be a key piece of this. And to do that, though, really was 
not to ignore the past and the people that were here, but really to work with them. And, and one thing I wanted to make clear when I came in was it wasn't really my, my role or job or interest to come in and clean house and start all over again. I, I think we had a lot of strengths and it's to build on those, do it together. Did some hard changes need to be made? Absolutely. And, and there were some challenges in the first year, year and a half. But I would say for the most part, it was really building up the team, growing upon that and setting a vision. And I think the the lack of vision prior to me coming was palpable. And I think the vision statements and, again, this shared vision that we ultimately had really is what led to the first few years of, of what I think was success. So a couple of key points there. One is obviously the importance of a vision for a, for a leader, especially a new leader. And secondly, you know, building up the team. A lot of ways to do that. What did you find worked for you? I think the again the first and foremost were really one on one and what I call no agenda meetings where I didn't come in with an agenda it was just for me to to listen and what I actually found was that the 45 minutes or whatever time allotted quickly went so I I actually remet with a number of the the staff very early and I think what worked well was to, to start to piece together because, again, this was a, it's a large place. I didn't know it. I hadn't done any of my training. I really hadn't been here. So just really being able to connect and understand. And then through these connections, listening to people, knowing what I wanted to do, finding common ground were some early quick wins that we all agreed upon. So for example, the way clinical schedules were set, and, and these may sound simple, but the, the fact of getting more support staff as far as nursing, these types of things that resonated and were commonly shared with everybody to me was so important early. Well, yeah, you know, it's interesting when, when you go on a listening tour, getting the information is, is useful without question and getting to know people is extremely useful. But then you've kind of got to act on what you hear. You know, some would say if you don't act on what you hear, then it kind of destroys the value of the listening part. So hearing the challenges, but then actually trying to do something about it and implementing some things, even if it's just more support staff, is actually a pretty big deal. Yeah, no, I agree. And and obviously then when it gets in the larger challenges, so how do you provide more potentially protected time in an era when we are being asked to do more clinically? And probably the biggest challenge were seeing some of the leaders that needed to be moved on. And whether it's finding a different position for them within the departments and inevitably in a few cases, having them actually uh, migrate away from Cleveland Clinic to your point, listening alone doesn't get you there. It's listening with action. And I think a shared goal and a vision is critically important. But then, of course, when you do deliver, you know, and you, you have their back and you actually have some tangible things that are in place, I mean, that, of course, leads to trust. And trust kind of is essential if you're going to go from point A to point B. I think the trust is is absolutely essential. The the one thing I found early was that this was a group that really yearned to trust their leader 
And you, it, it's income overnight. And I think to your point, that takes time and, and sometimes it takes years. It's not even months, but early trust. But once the trust is in place and the team is really kind of working in the same direction, working to the same goal, then the, the allies become palpable. And then all of a sudden, exponentially, it's not just one person doing, it's a team doing. And obviously, the team can do much more than one, one individual leader. How did you turn it around so quickly? I mean, what is the current state? The current state is very different than the one you showed up in. I think there are probably two or three things. So one, just to restate what I said before, is setting a vision that changes the culture. And that that's probably... That was probably three to four years. I'm just entering my fifth year. So it's, it's, you know, that takes time. But, and what I mean by that is not just clocking in every morning, clocking out every night, seeing patients all day, but what is it we want to do in innovation, education, research, really making that part of the fabric of our lives. I think that was one big one. Probably in the first year to 18 months was rebuilding. So we just, well, just recently hired our 45th gastroenterologist over about a three-year span. So we essentially hired an entire division in most places in the country in a very short period of time. And I think having new people come in, fresh ideas, that, that gives a lot of motivation. I mean, people are, and having our, our current, our staff that were in place help with that recruitment. That alone is, is just incredibly inspiring. I think the, the staff wanted to hire, saw the new people. Some of them they would actually mentor, which is even more fulfilling to me. So it's really setting up a legacy and a program. That overnight uh, turned things around. And, and then finally, there were some leaders that were in place that probably weren't the right people and making those changes, which needed to happen over the first couple of years was important as well. 45 docs in, in three years is an awful lot. So what do you look for when you recruit? Obviously you're good at it. Do you look for how big somebody's CV is? Do you look for other things? How do you approach recruiting? I would say to me that the number one most important part of recruiting is their emotional intelligence and, and their personality. You know, obviously there's the, the CV, there's the academics, there are the letters of reference, there are personal references. Unfortunately, within gastroenterology, we kind of, this is a, it's a big community, but it's small enough that we know each other so I can pick up the phone. Th those are the easy parts. And I think most People who are applying or interested in Cleveland Clinic have checked off the CV and academic boxes. It's really the, the person themselves. How do they fit into the team? Where do they see their direction? How do they deal with difficult times? Uh, resilience. I know we say that a lot. I think the most successful recruits are those that have really failed a couple times, picked themselves up, succeed, and then bringing them into that culture has been really rewarding. So that that's, yeah, it's not all the CV. I, I'd say there's certainly a lot of emotional intelligence and personality. Well, I couldn't agree more. You know, when I was recruiting and I recruited a huge amount for the cancer center, I think actually I've got 45 B, but that was over 10 years. So, you know, in terms of the short period of time, that's really impressive. But emotional intelligence is front and center. And, and it was interesting when I was recruiting Frequently, applicants would tell me at the end of the interview, you know, boy, you ask different questions than anybody else, because I actually tried to probe for emotional intelligence. And then the other thing you mentioned was resilience. And, and Angela Duckworth has a wonderful book called Grit, 
which tries to predict success. And, and essentially, it's a combination of passion for what you're doing, as well as perseverance, which gets to the resilience part. You know, everybody gets knocked down, but, but the people who get up and keep at it, well, those are the people you want on your team. And then finally, academic medicine tends to focus people on themselves. And, and increasingly, I think today, you've got to have people who can work as teams, and not just with docs, with all the other people in the healthcare delivery system. And, and I think all those are incredibly important. As you, you know, when you think about who you want to recruit from a physician perspective to your organization. Yeah, one thing I want to add, it was, it was interesting when you were saying that I, I, I think you and I have a very similar style. The, um, in my recruitment, the interviews, I would include non-physicians, so nurses, uh, even a couple of times secretaries, my administrator, coordinators. And it was interesting the effect it had when I asked these people to be involved in the interviews. They thought I was joking or they never heard of that. But then they took it so seriously that actually improved morale here. But then for the candidates on the outside, there were probably one or two that I did not hire because they did not interact well with the other team members. I think they felt at a physician level, they turned it on. They did a great job. But it wasn't a physician. They were a different person. And to me, that's the reason probably one or two people I didn't hire. I think that's great. And I think that's a wonderful take-home point for all of our audience. I wish I had done that more. The one thing I did do was when it came to picking our fellows, the first person I asked was our uh, fellowship coordinator who had to deal with all of these folks. And we had a bunch of docs interviewing these folks, but the fellowship coordinator had the best handle on all the applicants. And, and really, I relied on her more than anybody. I agree. I completely agree with that. So you come here, you have great success to your eternal credit, and, and shortly thereafter, the chairmanship for the Institute opens up. And just to, just to orient our listeners, the Digestive Disease Institute here at the clinic is composed both of surgeons and non-surgeons. So Miguel was chairman of the gastroenterology department and, and hepatology and nutrition, and that's a non-surgical division, but we also have in the Institute colorectal surgery, general surgery, breast surgery, you know, much of the day-to-day -day surgery that goes on at the Cleveland Clinic. And historically, this has been an organization that, that has chosen surgical leaders. And so what made you throw your hat into the ring? And how did your initial approach to the, to the opportunity evolve? Yeah, that's a good question. So initially, to be very transparent and honest for everything you just said, I did not throw my hat in the ring and really hadn't even considered it. One, I had been here still a relatively short period of probably about three years at that point. Uh, and secondly, to what you said, the two thirds, well, now with so many gastroenterologists, but still the majority of the depart of the Institute are, are surgeons, not non-surgeons. And I just figured the history was it, it had to be a surgeon. And I know you had actually helped me through that process because I sought your advice. So thank you again. But I think it was a combination of two things, interestingly. One is my wife who said, why aren't you applying for this? And I said, well, because it's always a surgeon. And it was interesting just over dinner we had a conversation and she said, you know, you've you've done great things and it looks like the teams are 
taken to you. And a lot of the research I had done was actually with surgeons more than non-surgeons. So I'm very comfortable nationally in that realm. And then the second is I did get a, a call from an executive leadership standpoint saying, we noticed you didn't throw your hat in the ring. And this was probably three weeks in and I had a nice discussion and then I threw it in. So quite honestly, I wasn't, wasn't something I was looking for or thinking I was going to do. And I I'm thrilled to this day that I did it, but that's uh, that's the honest truth as far as how it started. Well, it's always nice to be invited. I mean, that's, that's, that's a good thing. That that's cool. So you wind up getting the role and you've been at it. A little over a year, a year and a half, something like just, that? Just actually, believe it or not, just coming up to a year. It was May, so almost a year. And tell us about the first six months. Tell us about how you've approached it. Was it identical to how you approached the gastroenterology opportunity? Was it different? What's happened? So uh, it's interesting from a leadership standpoint, uh, the same principles really applied and uh, I almost used the same blueprint. And, and there, there were some things I learned early in my tenure here in 2018 that probably didn't do as well. And since that was fresh enough in my mind, uh, I could avoid those or, or enhance upon those. But really the first, um, so again, you're talking even larger numbers of people to meet with, but I did meet with everybody in the Institute. So all the surgeons, different regions, different locations. And I tried to meet with as many of the non-physician leaders within different areas in the ORs and the hospital. And again, it was the same exact thing, just listening to what they were interested in, understanding too, as a non-surgeon, that I wasn't looking to disrupt the surgical presence, if anything, just looking to enhance. And what I learned was, similar to what I found when I came here, we're all people. So it doesn't really matter what your name or the name of your title is. There's their common goals. So people wanting more time, more academics, trying to figure out what their career is, how that's going to look. And what I've really loved about this and, and probably didn't foresee, but I do these, uh, like I said, no agenda meetings that I've done with GI, especially those within 10 years of fellowship. I actually now do that with surgeons. I have a number of surgeons. I don't know if they're coaching or mentoring, but just we have one-on-one -on -one meetings and whether it's in breast surgery, trauma surgery, main campus, just talking about career and focus. And, and if they want to talk about just personal, that's fine. And that to me hasn't changed. And that's something I'll always value as far as a leader. Yeah, I, I think there's a huge value in that in one-on-one -on -one meetings and just kind of leaving an open conversation. I think that's fabulous. So you had a vision and it must have resonated. You know, one of the things about having a vision that, that I read a while ago, and I didn't really appreciate it until I became chairman of the Cancer Center, was, was to execute a vision. You've got to, you've got to, talk about it all the time and, and you've almost got to preach it it can almost be evangelical at least it was for me when I finally figured out what exactly my vision was have you experienced that do you think that that's valid absolutely I think so repetition and simplicity 
So the the theme, I, I have this pyramid that I created, which is very easy to see where at the base is clinical education, research, innovation. And it's it's just visually, it's it's simple. It sounds silly, but it became almost the, the preaching point, if you will, for the first few months. So the town hall, individual meetings, we restructured our meetings and really every meeting almost started with that over and over. The newsletters, the inclusion of what we did. And I think the thing that, that I think has taken off is now the teams are really, as you say, preaching this. I mean, I can hear people give talks or when they know they don't know them around or listening, say the same thing. And I think that's the, the common thread. So I do think that's important. And I think having the vision also has to be simple enough. If it's too complicated, too many moving parts, then it's hard to be tangible and to repeat. Yeah, I agree with that. How much is uh, the Institute involved in Cleveland Clinic London or Cleveland Clinic Abu Dhabi? So a fair amount. I, I wouldn't say that's the majority of my time, but certainly a fair amount. We have great connections with both. And one of the one of the vision, as I mentioned before, is building research. So one of the areas we're looking at is this international research core in DDSI with Abu Dhabi in London. And we actually now have these global meetings set up and those are going very well. So, so having those counterparts to work together, that's one thing that is special about this place, Cleveland Clinic, is having that international family that's, that's built in that you can do a lot of neat educational research, clinical. So it's a part, but, but they don't report to me specifically, although there's a lot of uh, shared goals, visions, and discussions as far as leadership. And Cleveland Clinic London, probably by the time this podcast airs, will have just opened its hospital. And I know that general surgery and much of what's in DDSI is is a big part of that. How involved have you been in that? Now, again, for our listeners, London has an institute model and they've got institute chairs over there. And so there's a chair of DDSI at Cleveland Clinic London. I've actually met all the institute chairs. It's a fabulous group, um, very engaging, very intelligent just wonderful to interact with. But do you have much, I mean, given that there's a lot of excitement about the opening, have you been involved with that? So not not as much the opening per se. I mean, just to be transparent, um, I'm not as much boots on the ground or making decisions even from this end. I think the interactions have been with the DDI chair and the, the GI chair, who I've, I've kind of known even before all of this. And again, this comes back to the GI is small enough, we get to know each other. And he's wonderful. Dr. Charlie Murray really has been nice in terms of as we evolve in our educational and research programs to include them and have these programs jointly. And with the world being virtual, it's so easy to kind of link people in. But it, to, to be clear, the day in, day out operational decision and logistics, I, I, I've not been overseen or involved in so far as uh, kind of going forward. But there was a lot of how did you do this shared ideas, uh, obviously different systems. So that's also something to take into account. Tell me about your early leadership experiences. I, I presume they were at UPMC. What, what were yeah. they like? And, and, and how, have you, how have you learned and developed leadership? Yeah, that's a great question. You are correct. There were UPMC as the, at first was the clinical director of the inflammatory bowel disease program. That's probably 1990, or yeah, 1999, 2000. So we're, we're going back a ways. 
it's funny looking back on me then i was a very different leader just because i think it was maturity and not knowing so i think then it was the feeling of we have to drive this forward which meant i have to drive this forward and everybody come along for the ride which in hindsight was a mistake and i learned from that very quickly but that's that was where my earlier days and then once i did get the i guess the bug for leadership earlier i like building and then and then it became about the team i like building the team seeing the team succeed more than me independently and we grew and then kind of each uh, successive few years uh, i was promoted or uh, had a new position and that was very rewarding to me for me, the epiphany was when I had my first 360, which uh, was a little over 20 years ago now. And, and I assumed it was going to be glowing and <laughs> I was very wrong. It wasn't glowing at all. It was largely negative and that actually stung. That hurt a lot. And so I, I decided that I wanted to learn a lot more about the topic. And I didn't know that the whole field of research was involved and there was literature about this. And I started to read voraciously, but that 360 was a big deal for me. Have you had 360s? Have you learned from them? I've learned a lot. And to your point, probably my first 360s, again, this is going back to, to UPMC, were not very good. Uh, and I remember, to your point, probably the first two were you need to do less for yourself and more for others uh, because that's not a good leader. And I do remember, I think it was the second 360 that started to get me involved in, uh, as you alluded to, these coaching and the concept that leadership is actually almost an entity into itself within medicine. And I think that was around the time that was becoming realized. I think before then it was more an individual making decisions, which is what I was trying to emulate. And that was terrible. I wasn't doing a very good job. So those did stung. Those still stick with me. I've actually kept them and I refer to them. And it's interesting how I've learned a lot. I actually feel, and I say this even today, I learn a lot more from all the failures and I've had many more failures than I've had successes, but those are really what have shaped the next step. I couldn't agree more, Miguel. I think that, that my multiple failures, which have occurred with massive frequency over the years, or how you learn and how you, you know, how hopefully how you how you evolve in a positive way. Golly gee, um, I, I couldn't agree more. Anything specific you'd like to share about, you know, one of your failures that you've bounced back from? Yeah, I'd say one. Well, I, I would even bring it closer to here. One of my early failures when I got here, even though I thought I had learned a lot in my UPMC days, was realizing that there needed to be an individual change in leadership and making that as a you're out and me assigning a new person and doing that without enough time to do due diligence, a process and, and enough listening, which, which I said I did a lot of. But, and although I think the decision at the end of the day was probably correct, the way I went about it was, was a failure because it disengaged a lot of people I think early that was that was bad because that showed, hey, is this is this person really going to come in and say they're not going to clean house, but they are. And from that, I learned. I slowed down. I, I kind of almost to go fast, you have to slow down. So I became much more methodical, much more team due diligence, a process, putting 
bigger decisions through a process. At the end of the day, as a leader, I acknowledge I have to make those decisions, but but I did that, that, that was too quick. That was a fumble that I made early here. And I told myself, I remember that day, I said, I can't do this again. This is this is something we need to correct. And so I think um, people joke about how much process I do now around leadership and when we make decisions. But I think that that's been helpful to me. That's a really good story. And actually, it resonates with me because I, I pretty much did the same thing when I first became chair of, of, of the Cancer Center. I thought it was important to make some changes quickly. And in fact, the opposite was true. Um, it, you know, it's incredibly important to take your time and to do the due diligence and and to not react quickly. I mean, people give you the benefit of the doubt when you have a new job and, and nobody really expects you, you know, to jump up and down immediately. That's so I think that's a great point for our listeners. One thing that clearly has has been thematic in what you've described is the importance of teamwork. And there's pretty much two fundamentals to leadership. There's a lot of skills that people teach, like how to have crucial conversations and how to have learning agility, et cetera. But the two fundamental skills are about supporting your team, developing your team, having their back, giving them credit for success. And then the second one being improving yourself and having self-insight. I think that it's clear that you excel at both. And it sounds like, you know, that, well, I won't project. I mean, for me, after my a couple 360s, I wasn't placing enough emphasis on the team. And I also didn't have enough self-insight about, you know, my behavior and my actions. So they actually kind of occurred for me in a kind of similar time frame. How about you? I would say that's true. And I think early on, the realization was the team was more important, but also the feedback. One thing, as you were talking, I was thinking about even till to, to today, whether to coach a 360 other team members, all of us like to get positive feedback. I understand that. But for me, I, I'd rather almost hear what are the opportunities for improvement. And I still will want that and listen to that much more critically than you're doing a great job. Everything's positive because we can't get better unless we're really getting the honest feedback. And to your point earlier, if the team trusts you and there's the trust and you have a team, the feedback will be more credible and more transparent. And then I think we can continue as leaders to continue to make these small changes towards success. Do you give honest feedback? I do. So I, I, I think one other part that I've always tried to do, and I certainly would say the latter part of UPMC and certainly here from day one is, is transparency. We're actually going through another process where a section head stepping down and we're having somebody else come in and there are a few people interested. Is transparency and fair? And I'll be very honest with people. I'll tell them you know, what, what I think their opportunities are for improvement. They may not always like to hear it. And I tell them it's my opinion, but this is what we can do to get better and, and also do it in a professional way. I think if, if you do it in a berating way, it's not effective. But I think from what I've heard from my own team, people really appreciate that. I, I think before there was always this murky, we're not really sure what the person's saying, my leader's saying. Now it's pretty crystal clear what I'm thinking. Yeah, I think that's very important. And one of the things that allows you to do that, of course, is creating psychological safety, which Again, for our listeners, I mean, Amy Edmondson has a wonderful book about this called The Fearless Organization. But if you have a psychologically safe 
environment with teams such that people feel comfortable and are, and are not afraid to share ideas, to share opinions. I think it also makes the ability to give honest feedback a bit easier. So clearly you must practice a lot of psychological safety. Probably without knowing, yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, and I think all joking aside, I realized that the other day when one of my more uh, senior staff came and said, hey, do you know, do you realize this is happening? You may not be aware. And, I, and the other thing I always say is I don't like blind spots and I always try to avoid my own blind spots. And I wasn't aware of this. And, and this was something that I think if they didn't feel safe in telling me, because it wasn't the most positive thing, not directly about me, but about a process, that helped me immensely. And I think that took a lot of courage on their part to do it. And it helped me a lot. So absolutely psychological safety, I think is important. So since you took over last May, we've had a couple of COVID surges. Uh, probably the biggest one was December and January of this year, which is 2022. What did you think was essential as the leader of a very large institute to get your group through that? I think that to me became more about the human being and the personal part than the professional. Maybe to explain that very briefly, again, as you alluded to, this was a time where burnout was high from COVID to begin with. And oh no, here we go through another surge. So rather than say we need to do more focus on something clinical, it became more you know, how's your family impacted? What do you need? People are getting sick. I mean, again, a lot of our own staff had COVID. And I think that taking more of the personal touch first, the human part first, helped the clinical and what we needed to get through. And so it really flipped from where we were about six months ago. And I think that I wouldn't do it any differently. I think that helped. And I think that really got us through that last surge. When COVID started back in 2020, I, you know, communication was so important. And I think all of us tried very hard to, to communicate um, extensively. And I think our organization did a very good job of that. But as we went forward, being able to connect with people on that level, you talked about the humanistic level, I think certainly was a winning formula for me. And I think it kind of gets to authenticity um, as well as empathy. And I have found that especially in tough times, the more open and honest and willing to be vulnerable one is, a leader is, the easier it is to connect with the team, to your constituents, to whoever you're interfacing with. And I'm even more convinced than ever about the value of authenticity, about just being real and, and not, not saying, you know, standard jargon, but be, being kind of very plain speaking and very, if you don't know something, you say you don't know. That has worked very well for me. Have you found that to be true for you? Absolutely. And I, I think the way that this came is you, you were talking about the second surge. I realized I had done this and actually hearing what you're saying, I'm learning because I, I didn't realize it at the time. But as the second surge started, I restructured our leadership meetings, which used to be just the administrative leaders and the chairs in a room. It was somewhat depersonalizing, I think. I switched it to half of it was a core leadership meeting about the first 30 minutes. And then the other half opened up to the entire Northeast Ohio DDSI leadership teams from administrators to nurses, to APPs, to physicians, regionally main campus. And it was about 70, 75. I remember telling my administrator, I said, you'll know if this is failing 
if you see 75 people the first week, 60, 50, 20, 10 logging on, because these were virtual because of COVID, right. we've kept them that way. But to your point, one of the connection points, and I think was successful, not just with me, but with the others were just the, the real plain speak of this is what it is. None of us have an answer. We don't know where it's headed. Just saying that honestly up front and then opening it for discussion was incredibly powerful. So I think the way you stated it was, was great. This has been wonderful, Miguel. You've done a stunningly superb job. So congratulations. As we wrap up, do you have any closing kind of pearls of leadership wisdom that you'd like to share with our audience that kind of summarizes your philosophy? I guess a couple. Listen, keep it real, keep it simple, and share your vision with your team because the team is, is, is going to be your success. Those are wonderful, wonderful ways to wrap this up. And, and for, to our listeners, this has been one of our best podcasts with a really wonderful leader here at the clinic. So Miguel, thank you so much. Thank you. To our listeners, I hope you've enjoyed today's conversation and we thank you for tuning in and we look forward to sharing future podcasts with you. Have a wonderful day, everybody. This concludes this episode of Beyond Leadership. You can find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash beyondleadership or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We welcome any topic ideas you may have for future episodes, comments, and questions about this or any past episode. You can let us know by emailing us at executiveeducation at ccf.org.